This is Josh Smith, pastor of Prince Avenue Baptist Church in Bogart, Georgia. Our mission at Prince is simple, leading people to trust and follow Jesus. And it's our hope that this sermon would help accomplish that mission. For more information about our church, visit us at pabc.org. If you have a copy of God's Word, would you take it and turn with me this morning to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19 as we continue our series on the presence of God. We are doing this series on the presence of God, a little departure from our normal habit of walking through books of the Bible, which we'll pick up in January, because the vision that God has given us revolves around God's presence, and that is something that we don't talk about probably as much as we should or think about as much as we should, but my hope is that we would come to understand this and know this more, that when we talk about the presence of God, that you would know exactly what we're talking about and have a hunger and desire for that. We say that our vision, first of all, is to be the visible presence of Jesus in our community. That is a huge statement that we talked about last week. So if you don't know what we mean by that and you didn't hear last week, uh, please go back and listen to that. But what we mean is as Revelation 1 gives us this vision of Jesus ablaze with the glory of God, everything about Jesus and that vision is Jesus on fire with God's glory And the next picture we get is a vision of the church, the holder of the fire of God's presence. And so the church exists to hold the fire of God's presence. The church exists to be the means by which a community, a family, a world sees the presence of God. The invisible God is made known through the presence of Jesus Christ in his church. This is no small matter. We exist to make him known. And so we want to be the visible presence of Jesus in our community. We want to be a healthy and growing family of faith, passionate about three things. Passionate about experiencing, enjoying, and expanding God's presence. And so what we want to do over the next few weeks is we want to take those three words and talk about what we mean. What do we mean by experiencing God's presence? What do we mean by enjoying God's presence? What do we mean by expanding God's presence? And the one verse that I have come to believe is the verse that summarizes all of this, a verse that I've mentioned probably every week over the last few weeks, and only the Lord knows how many times I'll mention it in the next few weeks. I'm going to say it until it is the first thing that comes into your mind when you wake up and the last thing you think about when you go to bed. You're going to be in bed hoping you can think about something else, but I want you to be thinking about this picture and this verse. It is that cry of Jesus in John 7, if anyone is thirsty, which is everyone. Let him come to me and drink. And out of him will flow rivers of living water. And this he said about the spirit. And so God's vision for us, my vision for you, what I want you to have as your vision for your life is that you would be a person who drinks heavily. Let me finish the sentence. That drinks heavily from the presence of God. That you wake up in the morning and you're thirsty and you drink. And in the afternoon you're so thirsty you have to stop what you're doing and you have to drink. And you're going to bed at night and you're thinking instead of watching something or whatever else, I'm going to drink. You just know that the only satisfying reality in all of life is Jesus. And so you just drink and you drink. And what happens is two things. You become satisfied with Jesus. So your life becomes full as the woman at the well experienced And then you are so full of Jesus that flowing out of you is his presence. So you gather with a group of people at work or at a Thanksgiving meal and 
what is happening is that you're so full and you've been drinking so much that flowing from you are rivers of living water. And it's not fake and it's not manufactured and it's not some presentation you're giving. It is the real life of God himself by his spirit flowing out of you. Is that a good vision for life? Are y'all awake? Can you feel awake? Say, you awake? Okay, we can. If you're awake, say amen. That's kind of my thing, so. I really long for you to, to experience that, for that to be real in your life. And so this morning, I want to talk about specifically about experiencing God and experiencing God's presence. Now, let me say at the beginning, what do I mean by experiencing? What I mean is this. I mean, I want God to be real to you. I want God to be personal to you. I want God to be known. I want you to know what it's like to have intimacy with God. I want you to know what it's like to meet with God. I want God to be a daily reality in your life. I do not want to be God to be something that you tip a hat to on Sunday morning or if you're really committed on Wednesday night. I want this to be real and personal to you. I want you to know what it's like to have a real, living, active, dynamic relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's my hope for you. My prayer for you really is what we prayed just a minute ago in Ephesians 1. Uh, we read both passages, but Paul begins in verses 3 through 14 with this glorious truth, this overwhelming truth that every blessing in the heavenly places is ours. And then he lists them. You are chosen. You're adopted. You're predestined. You're called. All of these words that are ours were heirs of all the promises, sealed with the Holy Spirit. And then it's as if he stops after all of that truth and prays because what he knows is this. If God does not work in the heart of the believers in Ephesus, they will know what he said, but they will not ever experience the truth of what he said. And so that's Paul's prayer. A spirit of wisdom and revelation is a prayer that instead of just mentally knowing something, you might really come to know it, that you might experience it. Truths that you've known for 20 years might all of a sudden become a reality. Phrases that you've heard over and over, verses that you've memorized and quoted, now all of a sudden are real to you. A God that someone told you about now is a friend and a lover. And you enjoy him and you're excited about him and you can't wait to spend time with him. My hope for you is that what would be said of you as God has worked in your life through the ministry of this church, what was said of Enoch, that he just walked with God. May it not just be said of you that you were a member of Prince Avenue Baptist Church or you served faithfully as a deacon or served faithfully as a greeter, worked for 30 years in the nursery. Well, that won't be said about many people, but some people, they worked, whatever it is. What we want to be said is this, you walked with God, like God was real to you and you every day just walked with him. So that's what I mean by experiencing God. And I want to give you a vision for this from a very familiar story in Luke 19. And I mentioned to you a few weeks ago, God has really stirred in my heart a desire to motivate you in a different way. I do not want to motivate you with a sense of duty or obligation because that ends up creating Pharisees in, in a way uh, that maybe we would not expect. Every sermon being duty driven and you just got to do this and just do this. Don't ask any questions. Just do it. I don't want to motivate you that way. I don't want that to be my ministry. I want to motivate you by showing you the glory of Christ. I want to motivate you by showing you that Jesus is better than everything. I, I want to, to motivate you by showing you this morning that God really wants to spend time with you. That he loves you. And it brings great joy to his heart to be with you. 
And that in his presence is everything you've ever looked for. That there is nothing you need and nothing you desire and no sin that you need to conquer that cannot be fixed in the presence of God. I want you to be motivated to go to Jesus, not because you have to do your devotions, but because there is a God waiting there that really wants to meet with you. And you get that picture in Luke 19 in a, in a really great and familiar story. And we're going to see how this story kind of connects to a greater picture of God's desire to be with you. So listen to what it says in Luke 19. I'll begin in verse 1. It says, He, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and he came down and he received him joyfully. And when they saw it, the religious leaders, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. You know, if you've heard me preach how important it is for me that you would picture the scene and put yourself in this position to be able to feel the weight of what's happening. So uh, Jesus is going into Jericho. This is, uh, according to Luke, the last personal conversation interaction like this he had before going into Jerusalem where he will die and so he was passing through Jericho and you get the picture that this was like a famous person getting out of a car when someone had already tipped everybody off that the famous person was coming in the car and getting out there and Jesus was surrounded by people. We see early in his ministry, this would be three years before that, that Jesus could not go anywhere. In times in which Jesus wanted to escape from those who were going to kill him, the crowd was so thick, Jesus could escape within the crowd and no one noticed because so many people were around him. Well, here we are three years later, after all of the miracles and all of the miraculous things happening and all of the words and the controversial words that he said, everywhere Jesus goes, he is surrounded by people. And so there's a massive crowd around him. He is being being mobbed by people in such a way that he's having a hard time walking and anyone that wanted to see him is having a hard time getting to him. And in that context, we're introduced to a man in verse two by the name of, of Zacchaeus. And we're told a few very important facts about him. And if you're taking notes, you might want to write down these very important facts about Zacchaeus. The first one you need to know is this, Zacchaeus is a crook. He's a crook says in verse 2 that he is a tax collector, which means he is a professional thief. He, pay, he gets paid to legally steal. And so the context would be that the Jewish people were under the oppressive rule of the Romans. And one of the ways the Romans oppressed the Jews is by collecting taxes from them. They then hired Jewish tax collectors who would go door to door and receive the tax. But the way in which the tax collectors made money is they weren't paid by the Roman government. They were paid by collecting more tax than they needed to. And so someone would knock on your door 
And it would be a tax collector and he would say, the Roman government is requesting $3, but they really only asked for $1. The extra two was for the tax collector. There is no way for the person in that home to know how much the Roman government expected. There is no way for them to appeal this. There is nothing they could do except give the money or go to jail. There was no court system to appeal. They were being oppressed by the Roman government. And so there was no way to argue this. The tax collector just went door to door taking money that didn't belong to him. And so the people were exploited and oppressed and they were hated and all because these tax collectors, they were professional criminals paid to do this. And so Zacchaeus was a crook. He was not only a crook, second of all, he was a successful crook. We know this for two reasons. It says in verse two, he was a chief tax collector and he was rich. And so apparently he was good at what he did. Uh, The way that we know that is if he was rich, that means he had taken a lot of things from other people. Throughout the years, he had taken so much that he had become rich off of the extra that he had taken from what needed to be collected. And he was a chief tax collector, which means somewhere in his career, the person at the very top thought, you know, if we need to teach young tax collectors how to do it, we ought to send them to Zacchaeus. Let's make him the chief. So he knew what he was doing. He was good at what he was doing. He was very successful. And if you wanted to be a really good professional criminal, then you learn from Zacchaeus. He had this thing down. And so he is just this kind of slimy, successful crook. And he is also, third of all, a despised crook. He's a crook, a successful crook. He is a despised crook. He has sold out his own people for money. He was a Jew himself. And there is still one group of people that it seems that we still greatly dislike as a nation, and that is traitors, people who sell state secrets to a foreign government in order to make money. That is still a group of people that we tend to highly dislike. Uh, We tend to reserve some of our greatest disdain for someone who would sell out the country to make their own money. This is what Zacchaeus did for a living. He consistently took advantage of his own people and sided with the Romans and their oppressive rule over the people. He was despised and hated to to such an extent that every time you hear them mentioned, you hear two words together, sinners and tax collectors. The two most hated groups of people, sinners and tax collectors. And I love that, that the religious leaders of the day categorize a group of people as sinners as if the religious leaders are not a part of that group. That's a different story, but in sermon, but that's what they did. There are the sinners and the tax collectors. He was a crook. He was a professional crook. He was a despised crook. But finally, he was also a little crook. He was a little crook. Now, I do appreciate um, Luke's kindness here. Luke apparently had been to some sensitivity training. He did a good job here. He and I, I will say this too, like as, as a guy who tends to be a tad bit vertically challenged, I do appreciate that he says this in a way that's so kind. He says, because he was, here it is, small in stature. Isn't that nice? Like, I don't know of a nicer way that you could say that. He's, he's just small in stature. Is he short? No, he's just small in stature. And so what Luke tries to do is, for some reason, kind of uphold the dignity of Zacchaeus and not make fun of him and not make him feel bad. He was just small in stature. And then on the other side of Luke's spirit of protecting the dignity of Zacchaeus and his size, on the other side of that, we have the song that all of us learned when we were young, that Zacchaeus is a wee little man. That's right. That's the whole opposite extreme. He's small in stature. No, he's a wee little man. It's like, is he a leprechaun? He's a wee little man. Like, 
Uh, you, like, it really feels like he's a leprechaun. He's just a wee little man. Like, you can't get more demeaning than that. Zacchaeus is probably up in heaven going, seriously, guys? Like, come on. Wee little man. But that's how we know him. We know him as a wee little man. And so, again, like I said, it's important to picture things and think about things correctly. It really does help us to interpret scripture. So if you think about Zacchaeus as this crook and this successful crook and and despised crook, just slimy and hated by everyone, and a little crook, I think it might be helpful to picture this. This might be a way uh, to picture Zacchaeus when you have him in your mind. Uh, That's Zacchaeus right there. That's, That's Harry from Home Alone. You remember him? Like every time you think of Zacchaeus, think of that guy. That's it. Like that's him right there. I never show pictures, but I thought I had to show that. That's again, it's Christmas season. You need to think about Harry. That's, that's Zacchaeus. Probably best to go ahead and take the picture down. But the detail that he was small matters because Zacchaeus really wanted to see Jesus and he couldn't. And so he does something that is only weird because Zacchaeus is not an eight-year-old boy. He climbs a tree. <laughs> I think Zacchaeus was thinking, well, everybody already hates me anyway. It's not like I'm going to lose anything here. Zacchaeus was so desperate to see Jesus, and he couldn't look over the crowd. There is no way he could get it. He decided to climb up to a sycamore tree and do anything he could to just get close to Jesus. Now, before Jesus, we see Jesus' response, I want you to turn maybe just a page back and look at the story right before Luke 19. Because Luke is trying to do something here. The context matters. In Luke 18, starting in verse 35, you see there it's Jesus heals a a blind beggar. This story matters in order to understand the story of, of Zacchaeus. Luke intended for us to see this one before that one. It says this, as he drew near to Jericho. And so chapter 19, he was going into Jericho. He was already there. But he was drawing near to Jericho. And he had another interaction. This was a blind man sitting by the roadside and begging Now, just in this context, know that they believe that a man was born blind because he or his family had sinned. And so he's blind. Imagine this if you have some disability and the whole thought of the generation is that you're disabled because you deserved it. You did something to deserve that. So there's no pity in that. You deserved it. Your parents deserved this. God did this to you because you were sinned. And so all, already this, this guy just as being blind is despised in every way. And there's no pity for him. There, there's no one that's caring or concerned with him. But to make it worse, because he was that way in society, all he was left to do is beg. No one wants to be near a beggar. When you drive a, down the side of the road and you see a beggar on the street, we usually roll up our windows and lock our doors. We, we, we don't. Nobody wants to get closer to a beggar. And it says in hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. And they told him Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. Now he had lost his sight, but he had not lost his hearing. He had heard about Jesus from the beginning. He knew that there was a God who had healed people of blindness. He knew that there was a God who had done what no one had heard, the Bible tells us, anyone ever do. And that is healing of a man who was born blind. He had heard about Jesus And so in verse 38, also having nothing to lose, he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. But look at the response of the crowd. Verse 39, those who were in front of him rebuked him, telling him to be quiet. Is there anything more demeaning as an adult than being shushed? Like that's really demeaning, just being shushed. And it wasn't just a feeling of a shush, it was a rebuke. Like no one wants to hear from you. No one has any desire to hear from you. Be, be quiet. You're disrupting the crowd. No one wants to hear from you. You're worth nothing. 
And so the, peop- the person that was already overlooked, the person that was already despised, the person that already had no dignity and no value by the entire crowd was now being told to be quiet and stop talking because they knew Jesus didn't want to have anything to do with him. But he cried out the more. Look at that. He cried out all the more, verse 39. He kept saying, son of David, have mercy on me. Recognizing Jesus, the son of David, a messianic title, have mercy on me, he said. I just want you to, for a moment, see the tenderness and the kindness of Jesus in verse 40. I want you to see Jesus the way he is described here. As everyone was rebuking the man and telling him to be silent, Jesus stopped. You see the verb? He stopped. Then he commanded the man to be brought to him. And then when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Look at the action, the verbs of verse 40. This is preparing us for chapter 19. First, Jesus stopped. He heard the cry that everyone else wanted to stop. He not only heard the cry, he acknowledged the worth and the dignity of the man by stopping and commanding him And not only commanding him from a distance, but commanding him, listen, to come near. In other words, hey, see that guy, that guy, hey, you, 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 I want you, I want you near me. Somebody go get that guy and tell him I I want him near me. No one ever wanted this man near him. No one ever gave this man any time. He had no dignity. He had no worth. No one had ever honored him in any way. But all of a sudden, Jesus gives him, in a sense, the ultimate honor by saying, hey, I want you to come here. And he wanted this man to draw near. And it was there in the nearness of the presence of Jesus Christ that Jesus gave him what he so desperately wanted. Jesus gave him back his sight by stopping, commanding, and drawing near. Now look back at Luke 19. You see something similar in verse 5. And so here is Zacchaeus who has climbed up a sycamore tree. For Jesus was about to pass that way. And verse 5 says this. When Jesus came to the place, look at the verbs, he looked up. And he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry down for I must stay at your house today. So here is another man who is longing to see Jesus. Really in a sense, they have a lot of things that are not in common. One is rich, one is poor, one begs, one is a criminal, one has exploited people for money, the other one is just begging for anything he can get. But they do have a few things in common. Listen, both Zacchaeus and the blind man were both despised, they were both overlooked, they were both unvalued, and they both had nothing at all to offer Jesus. There was no reason why anyone would have given them any attention, especially Jesus. This is what they have in common. And in Luke 19, we don't have a man who was crying out like the blind man, but we do have a man that was climbing up. So desperate to see Jesus. He wanted to see Jesus just like the blind man did. He climbs up to the tree. And yet both of these men, both of the unwanted men, both of the undervalued men, both of the despised men were both noticed specifically by Jesus Christ. It says in verse 5, Jesus looked up. Now imagine having the feeling that you had never really been seen. Whether it be a reality that throughout your life in the home in which you were raised, no one ever saw you, no one ever looked you in the eye, no one ever gave you the time and sat down with you, or whether it be just your perception that you are not seen and no one cares and no one is hearing and no one is listening. I'm here to tell you based on the authority of Luke 18 and 19, there is a God who sees you. And when everyone else is despising you, there is a God that is inviting you near. 
when you think that there's no possible way he would ever want to be with you, I assure you, he longs to be with you. And we know this because he not only in verse five looked up, but he said, I'm coming to your house today. You see, here's the interesting part. Zacchaeus could have never invited Jesus over. Zacchaeus was ceremonially unclean. Zacchaeus could not have entered the temple. Do you realize if Zacchaeus wanted to get right with God and he tried to go to the temple, he would have been blocked out of the temple because he was unclean. They didn't want him anywhere near them. Zacchaeus could have never invited Jesus over, but Jesus breaking all ceremonial laws because he replaced the law with his presence in that sense has said, I'm going to your house today. Now, I will say right here, I had some college students this week, knowing I was preaching on this text, ask if this still was a viable part of Jesus's ministry that they could imitate. Could they go to people after church and say, I'm going to lunch at your house today? I said, it's worth a try. Let's go for it. So if someone approaches you and says, I'm going to your house today, they're, they're just trying to be like Jesus. Just, just pay for their lunch. All right, go for it, everybody. The most amazing thing, Jesus is taking the unwanted and the unseen and the, in, and the unloved and in a way that Jesus only could with the tenderness of his eyes and the tenderness of his voice, he draws near to both of them and says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house. And it says, Zacchaeus hurried and received joyfully while all of the religious leaders grumbled that he was doing this. And verses eight and nine, I, I can't spend a ton of time here, but I would encourage you to meditate on these. This is a picture of salvation because Zacchaeus says, behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Let me just say this. If Zacchaeus does this, Zacchaeus will be broke. I'm gonna take what I stole and I'm gonna give it back fourfold. So apparently Zacchaeus had invested and he had a little bit more. What he was saying is, I'm not just going to, that would be one thing. I'm going to go back and give back to you what I've stolen from you. I'm going to give back to everyone I've stolen from fourfold. I'm, I'm going to bless them. I'm not just going to give it back. This is really a picture of, of true repentance. It says salvation has come to this house today. Why? Because salvation is not only acknowledging who Jesus is and acknowledging that you can only be saved through Jesus, but salvation is saying, I see the worth and value of Jesus. Therefore, I will turn from my sin and turn towards Jesus Christ. Salvation demands repentance. I have the opportunity I was going to say from time to time, but it seems more than that, to sit down with someone who is just in a sense, seemingly ruined their life through some very terrible mistakes. And they have walked in sin. Some of them admit it. Some of them got caught in it. And in those moments, I'm not cynical, but I'm not optimistic. I also have discovered I don't really have a good ability to know whether someone is genuinely repenting. People always ask me, you think they're genuine? I don't, I don't know. What I do is I wait and I see. And I see if there's any Zacchaeus action. Is this person willing to not only turn from that sin and not go back to it by the grace of God and the power of the gospel, but are they willing to then go make everything right that was broken? Are they going to sacrificially give themselves to move in the right direction to ensure everyone that was hurt and everyone that's experiencing pain is then being treated in the way they need to, giving themselves fully? Because that's what repentance looks like. That's what you saw from Zacchaeus. But you realize in verse 10, look at verse 10, all of a sudden that just like every story in the Bible, this isn't really a story about Zacchaeus. It's a story about Jesus. Because it says in verse 10, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. 
And so what Luke wants you to see from this story is not the brokenness of Zacchaeus, but the kindness of Jesus. What he wants you to see is not the shame of the blind man, but the tender mercy of God who draws near to the brokenhearted and says to every person who feels unloved and unwanted, there is a God that sees you and notices you and actually wants to come to your house. His heart longs to be with you. If there's anything in your mind that, you, that might make you think, there is no way God wants to be with me. There is no way that God would enjoy my presence. I assure you, you're a believing, a lie from the enemy. Because this is exactly who Jesus wants to go to. There's something deeper about this story that I want you to see, which will prove the point even further. Because in the context of Luke, this story is telling us something more uh, significant than just the story itself. You see, throughout the Gospel of Luke, one of the primary ministries of Jesus, listen, is eating with people. Robert Karras wrote this great book called Eating Your Way Through the Gospel of Luke. And Robert Karras says this, listen to what he says. He says, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is either leaving a meal, having a meal, or going to a meal. To which some of our college and high school guys say, amen, right? Jesus is either leaving a meal at a meal or going to a meal. He makes the point that Jesus is always eating. Almost all of his ministry revolves around eating. Listen to some of the things he says. He says over 60 times in the Gospel of Luke, food is mentioned. There are 45 different words used to refer to food. Jesus has four major interactions with the Pharisees. All of them revolve around food. Jesus eats with sinners, he eats with religious leaders, he eats with friends, he eats with enemies. Think about this. Right before Jesus died, what did he do with his disciples? Eat. Right after his resurrection, what did he do with his disciples? Eat. He was always eating. Six times in the Gospel of Luke, that makes a point to say that Jesus was reclining at a meal. And the picture is this, this low table that's shaped like a U. And there are no chairs there. There's just cushions. And what Jesus was doing is laying on his side with one hand like this, enjoying a meal, which shows that this is not fast food. Jesus came to sit down for a while. When he went to Zacchaeus' house, he didn't stay standing. He sat and he reclined at the table because this is what Jesus did. Listen, and it's not because Jesus loved food. It's because Jesus loved people. You guys, there is nothing efficient about a long meal. If your desire is just to get things done, to have the quick conversation, to say what needs to be said and move on to a next thing, you do not go to a long meal. But the reason that Jesus enjoyed so many long meals is to say to us that Jesus is not simply concerned with getting the job done. Jesus wants unhurried and uninterrupted time with people. There's nothing efficient about this way of ministry. He is communicating something that he wants to be with people. He longs for this type of intimate time. I had a really embarrassing experience uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Andrew and I were invited to go to a meal with a couple that we love and respect, but had never eaten with them before. And for us, it was kind of a big deal to be able to go eat with them. And I was very excited about it. And Andrea was excited. I knew the guy a little bit, but Andrea had never gotten to know the wife. And we were really excited about this meal. It had kind of been on the calendar for a while. And so we go and sit down. And the guy is sitting in front of me at a booth. And the lady is sitting in front of, of Andrea. And we're talking. We're having a great time. And uh, I was already just kind of amped up like, I nor like my normal amped up. But I'd 
been up really early and had a good amount of coffee already. And so I think I was a little bit more than normal uh, jittery, as if I need caffeine. So this is kind of a thing. And, and uh, all of a sudden, the man begins to tell a story. We'd been there for a while. He begins to tell a story. He interrupts himself in the middle of the story and looks at me and says, do you have someplace else to be? I say, no. He said, well, you act like you have some other place to be. Like, if you need to go, that's fine. Like, I, do you need to go someplace? And under the table, my wife's just like killing me. Like, she's kicking and I, I don't, somehow I was communicating that I didn't want to be there because that's, I'm just jittery like that. And he kind of got the perception from my body language that there was some place I would rather be. It was humiliating. I, I just, I assured him, no, I'm just like this, right? I'm sorry about that. I promise you, God is my witness. This is true. We walk out of the restaurant. The first thing Andrea says is this, you have to stop drinking coffee. <laughs> I promise you. That was the conversation we had. I texted the guy later and I said, listen, here's what I, I'm sorry about this. I wasn't trying to communicate that. But Jesus never had a meal in which he communicated that. He never had a meal in which he was sitting down with someone and communicated that he had someplace better to be. He never communicated that he would rather be doing the next thing. Some of us have a tendency to always want to be doing the next thing. Jesus always wanted to be doing that thing in which he was doing and when he was at a meal with someone, he was there, he was relaxed, he was engaged because he did not come for the food. He came for the person. Remember Martha and Mary? Remember how Martha was so concerned that everything be right for Jesus? Remember that? Like the table center had to be great. The food, this is Jesus coming to the house. We love Jesus. The food had to be great. And then she's ticked at her sister because her sister's sitting there while she's working so hard to get this incredible meal together to which Jesus says, Martha, I did not come here for the food. Put out some salami and crackers. I don't care. I didn't come for the food. I came for you. You're missing the point of the meal. You're not even here. Mary is choosing the better thing because here she is at my feet listening. Martha, this is the reason I came to be at your house. And every time Jesus was having a meal, he was picturing his heart and desire and longing to just be with you in some uninterrupted, unhurried time. Let me give you one more passage and that is in Revelation 3. Turn with me if you would. This passage we've used a good number of times in Revelation 3. I want you to see one more thing. Remember last week, so we talked about the context here of Revelation 1. We get an updated picture of Jesus, not hanging on a cross, but Jesus on fire for the glory of God. Consumed, his hair's on fire, his feet are on fire, he's got fire coming out of his eyes. Like if you have some old outdated picture of Jesus, read Revelation 1, that's him. And then the end of Revelation 1 is God's vision for the church, that the church would be the holder of the fire of God. And so the church is supposed to be just ablaze with zeal for God. Nothing less than that, the vision for the church. This is why he is so disgusted with the church of Laodicea. And he tells them how disgusted he is with them. And he is saying what we have said before. It is possible to go to a church where God is not present. He's omnipresent, but he is not manifesting his presence. And the reason we know that is because at the church of Laodicea, while they're inside having church, Jesus is knocking on the door saying, hey guys, I'd love to come in, but they don't even know they need him. One of my greatest prayers all the time. I, I want Jesus, I want God and his presence to come to church. I have visited churches where it does appear that God did not show up. 
Look at what he says in verse 20. Chapter 3, Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him. And let's stop right there. He says, listen, I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. And there's a lot that is, that is communicated here. I have four daughters and I can assure you the tone of my knock communicates. All knocks are not equal. We know this. That communicates something. Like, I got something to say, and you better open the door. That's kind of like, a, hey, I don't want to bother you. I don't know if you're asleep. I'd love to just come in and see you for just a minute, give you a hug before you go to bed, like something like that. Like, every knock communicates. The knocking of Revelation 3.20 is a humble knock because Jesus stays outside of the door. He doesn't just go in. He's waiting. And it's a quiet knock because if anyone hears my voice, he says, I'm speaking. I'm out here. But you've got to be quiet enough to hear me come in. But not only, not only does the knock communicate, what someone holds in their hand when you open the door also communicates. So if I get a knock on my office door and there's someone there with a bunch of papers, I know we're about to do some business. If three staff members are there, I know there's a problem. And they want to talk about something, right? It says here that Jesus knocks on the door. Listen to what he has in his hand. He has in his hand a meal for two. You say, well, how do you, how do you know that? We'll look at what it says at the end of Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. When Jesus knocks on the door, Jesus has a meal for two in your hand. What Jesus is saying is this. I want to, in the way I did with Zacchaeus, I want to come in and I want to sit and I want to have a meal with you. I want time with you. Now, let me tell you, if someone knocks on my door and I'm studying and I open the door and they have a meal for one, that is like awesome. Hey, I just, I wanted to bless you today. Here's a meal. I leave, they close the door and I get to eat and keep studying. That's great. If someone knocks on my door and there's a meal for two, all of a sudden I know this is going to be a while right? Like they didn't just come to drop something off. They come because they intend to sit down and have a conversation all the way. All of a sudden that becomes a dramatically different thing. I just want you to see that when Jesus comes and knocks on the door, then he is standing there with a meal for two because what Jesus wants is not the food. What Jesus wants is the time. He wants time with you. He could have looked at Zacchaeus and said, Zacchaeus, repent of your sins. And Zacchaeus done exactly what he did, but he didn't. He said, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house. Why? Not because I need food, but because I want you to know how much I want time with you. And listen to this. Maybe the reason we're often so reluctant to open the door is because we don't want to give Jesus that which we really don't like to give up. Time. We'll give him our money. But don't mess with my time. What Jesus is saying every day of our life is he wants some unhurried, uninterrupted, focused time with you. And you say, Pastor Josh, how do I experience God? You experience him that way by giving him what he's asking for, which is not a list of do's and don'ts, but just time. Students, let me tell you something. God just wants time. And you think you're busy now. You're not busy now. You will be, when you have five kids, you will be so busy. I trust, trust me. He just wants time. 
All he wants is just time. He's knocking on the door and he's saying, I just want time. And maybe you don't open the door because you think you're unworthy and you don't want God to see all that's behind the door. I assure you that you're not unworthy. He wants you to have the time. Maybe you're just never quiet enough to hear the knock. Maybe you can't sit still. Maybe it just feels like an interruption to all the other things that you need to do. But I assure you, all that he is doing is knocking at the door saying, I just want some time. And let me tell you as we close the reason you've got to open the door because standing at the door in the midst of all your busyness and all your questions and all your fears and all your anxieties and all your concerns is the person who has everything you need. Everything. Every answer you need is knocking on the door. The solution to every sin and anxiety and fear is knocking at the door. The direction that you need, the peace that you need, God help us in Thanksgiving week. All of the grace that you need is standing at the door. And we don't open the door because we think we're so busy and we don't have time to sit for a meal right now. And Jesus is saying, if you would open the door, everything that you need is there. But you have to open the door because the only way that you receive it it's by sitting there and giving him time. I assure you, Jesus is better than you imagine. He is more tender than you imagine. He is more gracious than you imagine. He is more kind than you imagine. He is more loving than you imagine. He is more patient with you than you imagine. If you were to look him in the eyes, we would crumble, not over the weight of our sin. You would crumble by the tenderness in his eyes as he looks at you, with the compassion that he has for you, with the brokenness he has for you. He says everything in your life and he still wants to spend time with you. We would crumble at the look of Jesus because we would see his gentleness and kindness and he's standing at the door and everything he has is yours if you'll give him time and that is how you experience God let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning thanks so much for taking the time to listen to this sermon may you trust and follow Jesus more and lead others to do the same for more information visit us at pabc.org